Well, thanks, Nate, and uh, welcome, um, ladies and gentlemen, to um, EasyGap's seminar series this evening. So I am delighted to introduce Mr. Benjamin Weinthal, who is a research fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and the European Affairs Correspondent for the Jerusalem Post. Weinthal's investigative reporting has uncovered valuable information on Iran's energy links to European firms as well as Hamas and Hezbollah's terror finance operations in Europe. He has also examined the growth of the Islamic State in Europe, growing anti-Semitism on the continent and neo-Nazism. So accordingly, the topic of his presentation this evening is Europe's economic war in Israel, the role of anti-Semitism in BDS and um, product labels. So let's look forward to a very stimulating um, um, presentation by Benjamin Weinfeld. Welcome to ASGAP. Uh, good evening. Um, first, I'd like to thank ISCAP for the invitation. Um, Dr. Charles Small, who, with whom I spoke yesterday, is in Israel and couldn't be here. Um, but I'd like to thank him and uh, Vivaldi for the nice introduction. And Nat is Nat, Nat's in the back. And um, um, Ira, is he here? I th probably still downstairs. Um, conscripting folks to attend this lecture. Um, <laughs> he's out on Lexington Avenue to passing out flyers. Um, I've been told, let's see, it's 6.15, so I've been told, as with my previous lectures here, that um, I have been allotted about four and a half hours for this talk, since it's <laughs> complex. So we'll finish about 10.30, um, and then we can have um, dinner. Um, let me just start um, just by way of background, then I'll show um, a video. Um, I'm <clears throat> I've been reporting on and analyzing um, the boycott, the BDS movement since 2006. So at one year after the BDS movement formally declared um, its its goal to um, isolate Israel and punish its economy, but I should add. Um, before BDS was formally announced in 2005, um, Europe has been infected with BDS. So BDS has existed in Europe for decades. I would argue, going back to 1967, after the war, it, it BDS, at least, it wasn't called that, but it existed nominally um, and on the ground, and BDS <coughs> uh, accelerated after 1967. So I'll use the phrase BDS to capture what took place in Europe since um, 2005 and since 1967. Well, let me just sh start with this video. I'm extremely uh, technologically inept, so I hope I, I can do this. <coughs> this is, okay, they have the code pink. <coughs> this is at APAC 2015 code pink demonstrators.
it, you can't hear it? Can we turn up the volume? You get the message, okay. Uh, so let's see if we can... Hitler not hit Hitler not um, Netanyahu. You will see. Oh. So they're equating yeah. Hitler with uh, Bibi Netanyahu. Yeah. I wonder if we can shut this uh, this off here so that we get rid of the um, the blue light. So yeah, you folks got the gist of the code pink uh, demonstration from the APEC policy conference of 2015. Um, I, I assume here everyone knows who Code Pink is. It's you know a crackpot. Um, extreme leftist group that supports BDS and on its website it has a number of pages calling for Israel to be boycotted. Here as you can see the, the one of the co-founders, Medea Benjamin, was wearing pink, she had blonde hair, um, was at was laughing as um, the demonstrators were calling for the abolition of Israel. The reason I showed this video is because um, this past February a city in uh, Bavaria called Bayreuth, where, as many of you know, the Richard uh, Wagner Festival takes place each year, the Ring Cycle in southern Bavaria, um, awarded this group, Code Pink, a 10,000 euro tolerance prize. Um, uh, I've written about this in the Jerusalem Post extensively, so that the group was awarded um, a human rights prize for their tolerance work. Once I found out about the award, um, I contacted the mayor of the city and sent her this video and a lot of detailed um, reports about Code Pink and when they attended a conference in Iran in 2014 with Holocaust deniers, that was also presented to her, including a BuzzFeed article about it. She was weighing the information, going back and forth and asking me to hold off on my Jerusalem Post article, etc., etc. And in the end, um, as I was about to, I, I published my article on the same day, or short, a few hours before, she um, announced her opposition to the award, um, based on her city's, or her, her responsibility to the victims of national socialism in Germany. It created a national scandal once she set out this press release based on the information I'd sent her. She, she cited the Jerusalem Post's investigative report, and the city council in this city um, went ballistic and decided to take a vote on the award. They eventually, after two weeks of heated discussions, including a number of members of the German parliament um, who intervened from the German-Israeli parliamentary group who said, we oppose the uh, tolerance award to Code Pink, the city council in the end voted 23 to 18 to award a BDS group a 10,000 euro prize, which they will receive, I believe, in a week. Um, so the reason I'm showing this is because this is the reality in Europe. A group that Code Pink of the United States that you know, shows up in Congress and disrupts congressional proceedings and um, claims to respect the First Amendment but ends up trashing it through their um, efforts to suppress speech um, is part of the mainstream in European society um, and are awarded tolerance prizes. Um, and I think it's important to keep that in mind because it shows in this case what you have is state-sponsored. BDS, as opposed to the U.S., where I've been told, and again, I'm based in Israel and Europe, so I'm uh, somewhat disconnected from um, what's happening in the United States, I've been told is mainly um, on college campus, campuses and with academia, um, and that's what I've read. But in Europe, it's, as I said, it's state-sponsored. In this case, it was a city, a, city, a municipality that awarded this group um, the prize and 
it makes sense on some level because for decades, um, cities, states in Germany, um, the federal government, they've, they've socialized the climate in Germany to be amenable to these types of groups. Now, a quick overview, this is what I'd like to talk about, um, and I'll try to keep it short because I'm of the view that good questions are better than good answers, um, and it's always more interesting. First, just a quick overview of the BDS movement and the labeling of products, since the, the title of this talk is e Europe's Economic War on Israel, the Role of Anti-Semitism in BDS and Product Labels. The second point I'd like to cover quickly is the overview of product labels from 2015 and the resulting actions once the product label measure went into effect. Israel and the U.S. response, as well as the presidential candidates, I think that might be interesting to see, to hear what they have to say about product labels. The damage to Israel's economy, the mixed views about what is BDS, or in this case, and the product labels, what effect has that type of um, movement had on Israel's economy. And the lack of countervailing forces, that will mainly cover Europe in contrast to the United States where there's um, largely a, a complete lack of countervailing forces to stymie or blunt the BDS movement. Whereas in the United States you have, um, I mean, as, some, as one of the audience members told me earlier that the, the state of New York now is threatening to cut money to the City University of New York system because of anti-Semitism, right? One third of the budget, I was told, might be slashed. Um, I mean, the opposite would happen in New York. They would increase the budget to support BDS. Um, and finally, where is BDS tending? Now, in terms of Europe, and I, and I think this is interesting because um, in Europe in the 60s, after the 67 war, there were certain thinkers who actually predicted where we're going to be now. Um, both of these thinkers were Jews, one, both of them, one from Germany and one from um, Austria. One survived Auschwitz, and his name is Jean Amri. Um, may, many, many folks may have heard him. In the late 60s, he said, um, open quote, anti-Zionism contains anti-Semitism like a cloud contains a storm, close quote. This is a left-wing writer um, who immediately recognized that anti-Semitism um, is um, identical with anti-Zionism. Um, we're now, what, 50, 48 years later, 49 years later, in New York City, and I read in the New York Times the other day an article from Eric Alterman, professor at Brooklyn College, who writes a column for The Nation claiming that, an that BDS is not anti-Semitic, um, or that, um, it, it or Peter Beinhardt, who just wrote in Haaretz, the same, the same tone, I should say. Peter Beinhardt's article was clear, saying that anti-Zionism is, is not um, anti-Semitism. So that's, that's the mainstream view here, I think, among many of these um, sort of left-of-center thinkers. One other thinker in Germany, Hans Meyer, um, who is a literature professor, also from the left, he was some type of cultural Marxist, wrote in a book his autobiography is called Outsiders in 1982. I'm not sure if it was translated into, um, into English, but he wrote, open quote, whoever attacks Zionism, but by no means intends to say anything against Jews, is deceiving himself or others. The state of Israel is a Jewish state. Whoever wishes to destroy it overtly or by means of policies that can affect nothing but such destruction is pursuing the Jew hatred of years past and beyond. Now it's interesting, these are left-wing thinkers who are equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, but it just hasn't been absorbed by the main, by um, Germany in this case, or Austria, or European society in general. 
Bayreuth. B-A-Y-R-E-U-T-H. B-A-Y-R-U-U-T-H. So if you look, if you, if you Google the Jerusalem Post, and you'll, you'll see a whole series of articles about it. It, was, it turned into a national scandal, which I thought was interesting. Um, but I'll revisit that a little bit later, because I wanted to talk about the Israeli embassy's response to that um, award. The Israeli embassy went... Um, you know, was just completely outraged and it issued one of the most um, powerful statements I've seen in the 10 years, 15 years I've been reporting on Germany. Um, one last quote, and this came from November of this year from Charlotte Knoblauch. She's the head of the Munich Jewish community. It's the second largest Jewish community in Germany. Um, and she's a Holocaust survivor. She's now about 83. She told me when Munich was about to right before the city of Munich was about to provide a room in its cultural center to a BDS speaker, um, she turned to me and told me in an email, and I'll quote her, um, open quote, the BDS campaign disguises the socially acceptable, don't buy from Jews, as a modernized form of Nazi jargon by demanding don't buy from the Jewish state, close quote. Um, she was outraged because that at, in November, um, right before the memorial commemoration services for the pogroms in 1938, the city of Munich provided space to a BDS speaker. Um, again, state-sponsored, in this case city-sponsored, um, BDS. Now, what is BDS? Many of you folks know, and I'm, I apologize if I'm, I'm repeating um, what, what's probably self-evident for most folks in this group. The BDS document from 2005 demands the end of Israel's occupation and colonialization of all Arab lands, dismantling the security wall that protects Israel from Palestinians and the right of return of several million, actually more than several million right now, descendants of original um, Arab refugees. The founder, Omar Bagati, has stated of BDS, the real aim of BDS is to bring down the state of Israel. A return, of refugee, a return for refugees would end Israel's existence as a Jewish state. Um, now, that's, that's what the um, founder is saying BDS is. Um, so to move into the, um, the overview of the product labels. Um, the, the product label movement, or it's a movement on some level, is highly dangerous from, from my perspective. Um, now, in 2009, Denmark implemented product labels on, again, products from the disputed territories, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Golan. That, so when I talk about the, um, the settlements, I'll move back and forth between the disputed territories and settlements. Um, Belgium, sorry, the UK was in 2009, I apologize. Denmark was in 2013. So Denmark was 2013. The UK was the first country in 2009 to implement um, product labeling. So it probably corresponds to why they have such a high level of anti-Semitism. Um, it would be an interesting study. Belgium, 2014. So while Belgium was um, not too focused on terrorist cells in Brussels, they were very focused on labeling Israeli products. Um, but that's a whole story, another story. So the EU started this escalating strategy, starting with Britain in 2009 and moving to some of the other 
member states, all of which, of course, are in Western Europe because this is where most of the BDS activity is going on. That, in, in short, Western Europe is the battleground of BDS, the, the global battleground, I would say. It's not, I don't mean to poo-poo what's happening in the United States and Canada because there's some really horrific stuff happening on U.S. campuses, but in terms of Again, state-sponsored BDS, the war zone right now is Western Europe and Central Europe. And I'll go back to where BDS first started in Germany, which I think is very interesting in terms of the labeling. In 2012, the neo-Nazi party in Germany, the NPD, um, submitted a legislative initiative in the state of um, Mecklenburg, Western Porina, it's, um, in, in, it really was in the, in the capital, Schwerin is the capital of this East German state, to label Israeli products. The head of the NPD in the state, his name is Udo Pastor, some of you may have read about, it. he's declared Jew Germany to be a Jew republic. So that took place in 2012. And you can watch the video, if you know German, online, where they're debating and talking about this initiative to label Israeli products. Again, 2012 in Germany. A year later, the German Green Party which is an enormously powerful party in Germany. It was part of the German coalition government with the Social Democrats before Chancellor Merkel became Chancellor in 2005. So the Greens control right now one state, Baden-Württemberg, where, where the governor of the state and the party um, are the Greens. So it's a, it's a very powerful party in Germany in contrast to many other countries. They spent enormous amounts of time in the Bundestag, this is on the federal level, where their members of parliament crafted an initiative to label Israeli products. Um, so while tens of thousands of Syrians were getting slaughtered in um, Syria by Hezbollah, Iran, um, Putin wasn't directly involved at that, at that point, and the Assad regime, the German MP spent um, probably months crafting this long, detailed um, initiative to label Israeli products. Their, their departure point is when I talk to them, we want consumers to be notified about where their products came from. I, of course, as a journalist, ask them in multiple press queries, why aren't, you know, there are, as, as, you know, hundreds of territorial disputes, why aren't you labeling products from Western Sahara, right, where Morocco currently occupies um, that region? Um, they couldn't answer. I said, well, why are you so intensely focused on Israel? Well, we want consumers to know where these products are coming from. Well, what about Tibet? What about um, North Cyprus? The Turks, of course, are occupying. And they couldn't give me an answer. What I did find interesting is when I asked them if they um, copied or plagiarized the neo-Nazi legislation, then they went ballistic. Um, they were very upset when I said, well, it's very bizarre because the language is identical. Did you plagiarize them? How did this come about? Um, and they just sort of refused to answer the question, said it was absurd. Um, but it gives you a sense, I think, in, in, in the case of Germany, again, this is across Western Europe, where you have the, the radical right merging with the sort of left liberals, and, they can, and the only issue where they can unify is how to beat up Israel, how to turn Israel into a human punching bag, how to label products. Um, and that, that's a reoccurring pattern. There's sort of a sort of a, a Nietzschean notion of the eternal reoccurrence of the same, I've noticed in Europe. When Israel becomes a hot-button issue, suddenly the entire spectrum of political parties, from the conservatives to the liberals to the far left, to also to include the far right, can unify on this one issue. And that's what we've seen in terms of, in terms of labeling. There's a couple of other examples that I'll delve into. 
um, where the left or the social democrats have pushed labeling. The social democratic mayor of the city of Jena in East Germany has supported a full boycott of Israeli products for years. His name is um, Albrecht Schroeder. Um, he supports, again, a more extreme version and hasn't backed away from his boycott. There's other city council politicians across Europe and, um, and in the parliament who support a more intense boycott of Israel. Um, I'll move into point number two, the overview of product labels from 2015. So that's the background, at least in Germany. And, I, and I, I'm focused on Germany not only because I'm a reporter there, but because Germany is the economic engine of Europe um, and considered by the Israeli government um, to be the best friend of Israel in Europe. Um, clearly, there seems to be a disconnect right now between those positions where um, German-Israeli relations are rock solid because of these types of um, disputes, especially in the area of product labels. 2015, November 11th, the European Union in introduced what's called um, an interpretive notice on the indication, an indication of origin of goods from the territories occupied in Israel since June 1967. That was the measure to, it wasn't a legal measure, but it was a, a measure, I guess, strong recommendation was how I interpret the language when I read it for member states, the 28 to um, label Israeli products. Now, the labels apply, and many of you read this, I'm sorry I'm repeating, my, repeating something you already know, to fresh fruit, vegetables, honey, wine, olive oil, eggs, poultry, organic products, and cosmetics. Um, the, the Israeli response to this labeling measure um, was, was rather fierce, understandably, given um, that Israel was singled out and that one other territorial dispute has been um, singled out for uh, labeling. Net, Prime Minister Netanyahu just said at the time, open quote, the EU decided to mark only goods made by Israel and I'm un unwilling to accept the fact that the EU labels the side being attacked by terror, close quote. Um, Ayat Shakad, Justice Minister, said, open quote, anti-Israel and ant called the product labels open quote, anti-Israel and anti-Jewish, close quote, Isaac Herzog from Labor, from Zionist Party, um, equated this measure with the Zionism, is, is racism resolution um, that his father dealt with when he was uh, the U UN ambassador. Lapid, uh, Yair Lapid, another opposition politician said, open quote, the EU is capitulating to the worst elements of jihad, close quote, Labeling is, he continued, open quote, a direct continuation of the boycott movement against Israel, which is anti-Semitic and misguided, he said. Um, so Israel's response, and there were many other comments um, where there were, where the Israelis, government officials equated the measure with the um, German boycott of Jewish businesses in the 30s and um, what, what happened in 2015. So the EU's response and this is um, the EU ambassador to Israel, Lars Feiberg Ander Anderson, excuse me. He said, open quote, the EU is against the so-called BDS, and we are against any attempts to isolate Israel. Relations with Israel are among the closest the U.S. Ha has with any non-member state. Israel's trade with the EU has increased from 20 to 30 billion euros per year over the last 10 years, 
We have signed agreements on liberalizing trade in agriculture and fishery products, on research operations, on air traffic, on pharmaceutical products. Europe is not boycotting Israel. Um, so those are the competing views. Um, personally, I, I see, and I, I've written about this in Haaretz in 2013 after the, the Green Party introduced this measure in the Bundestag, I see the I subscribe to the theory that, this is a, that the labeling is a slippery slope and it will lead to an incremental boycott, full boycott of Israel. It's just a matter of time. Um, because in Europe, once you begin to label products, um, Jewish products, um, it um, turns those products into, creates a pariah status for those products just because of the sociology of Europe right now. Um, Europeans, in my view, don't, you know, don't view, can't make these types of distinctions. Um, there's all sorts of historical reasons why they want to punish Israel, and um, it could turn into a de facto boycott. Um, if I may diverge for one second, I'm, I'm of the view right now, and this is my thesis, um, that Israel, Europe, and again, I'm focusing mainly on Western Europe, um, Europeans will never forgive the Israelis for the Holocaust. I'm saying that in a very sarcastic way, but there was a famous Israeli psychoanalyst, um, Zivi Rex, who said the Germans will never forgive the Israelis or the Jews for Auschwitz. I think it's moved beyond that now, and what we're seeing is a pan-European um, epidemic where um, Europe will not, as I said, forgive the Israelis for um, the Shoah. And that's a problem because a lot, of I a lot of what's motivating, I think, this BDS activity in, in Europe um, is this type of um, guilt defensiveness, anti-Semitism, to use a fancy sociological term from um, two German philosophers who used to work actually for this organization, AJC, uh, Max Horkheimer and Theodor Adorno. Um, so, did you want to ask a question? Yeah, when you Here. alluded to the historical uh, connections, were you referring to the Holocaust or Jesus or something beyond um, the, From the Israeli perspective. Yeah, the Israelis have, have most Israeli comments I've read have, have made the um, parallel with the uh, Hitler movement and boycotts during the 30s. So I, I haven't read um, comments that would, um, from the Israeli side, that criticize product labels because of um, Christian anti-Semitism, but they might be out there. Yeah. Um, two very quick, quick questions that came from a long way, so please allow me. The first question is, how much of this is motivated by the huge Arab voting blocks, Muslim voting blocks in these European countries now? How much of these uh, state-sanctioned uh, or municipality-sanctioned BDS movements? How, to what extent are we worried about that vote? That's my first question. The second question is, um, we were told a while ago in RJC that Obama was calling the shots at the EU because he couldn't impose that BDS here because there's huge Jewish uh, influence here. But it was Obama himself who was directing Europe to do this. We were told this by Danny Ayalon or something. It was coming right from him that he wants them to do his dirty work. So those are my two questions. Okay. Um, she asked two questions. Sorry. Thanks for reminding me. Um, what, what role are... Um, 
European Muslim communities playing in, in product labels and anti-Semitism? And um, are they influencing politicians? And the second point she asked um, is um, the Obama administration pushing Europe to do its um, dirty work in terms of uh, these BDS, these soft BDS measures. Is that correct? Okay. Let me let me just address the first question, and then um, I think my comments, which I'm about to segue into in terms of the Obama administration's response to BDS, might answer your question. If not, I'll try to answer it in a follow-up way. Um, I do think um, Muslim communities, European Muslim communities, whether in France or uh, Germany, which has over four million. Uh, Muslims, some of many of whom have citizenship, uh, most of whom are German Turks. Although there's a large um, German um, Arab population, and now with one with over one million new migrants who are potential citizens, there'll be even a larger um, role. So yes, to answer your question, Muslim uh, voting blocs play a role in many of these countries. Um, politicians, of course, are in a state of denial. They won't they won't openly express that. Um, but clearly it plays a role. I think it's going to be much more dangerous in Germany now that um, there's a, a new, a very large mo Muslim uh, voting bloc because um, I've seen large communities of German Muslims who are well integrated but are participating in anti-Israeli demonstrations that are calling for Israel to be boycotted. You know, politicians in Germany are saying, well, they need to sign a form or, or make some commitment that they're you know, the migrants that they f support Israel. There has to be some type of prerequisite as part of democratic life in Germany. It strikes me as rather odd. I mean, I, I know this is a dangerous parallel, and I'm being a bit hyperbolic here, so I'll qualify this next comment with scary quotes. But in Germany, after the World War II, the Americans implemented denazification, right? And the German soldiers and, and, and other Germans who were absorbed or immersed in lethal anti-Semitism had to sign a forum no longer a Nazi. So Germany now ref, ref, ref goes back to the sort of same process because it's very bureaucratic. They want refugees and migrants to sign a form that I'll support Israel. We know that denazification didn't work that well after 1945. Um, there were still Nazis in the judicial system. There were still German scientists working for Egypt and to, to help them with their missile system to destroy Israel. So I'm just not a big believer that in, after years of being socialized in Syria, and B'nai B'rith did a long study on um, school books in Syria many years ago, those books were filled with lethal anti-Semitism, filled with classical anti-Semitism, filled with the toxic mix of anti modern and classical anti-Semitism. I don't believe that those young men and women are going to suddenly um, accept Israel's right to exist and not engage in anti-anti-Semitic anti activity. So that's why I'm very skeptical. I don't. Chancellor Merkel told the head of the Jewish community, Joseph Schuster, in a meeting, the head of the Central Council for Jews in Germany, which has about 105,000 members, he said, well, we're going to have a problem with migrants in terms of safety for the Jewish community and anti-Semitism. And she told, she, she told him in this sort of cabinet meeting, um, well, we'll just take care of that. Um, so, it, you know, it's... It, you know, the, the, the Western or the American press didn't pick up on it. I reported in the Jerusalem Post, I did a, a translated, and it was just sort of like, you know, the, the, the functional equivalent of an employee coming to your office with a grievance and saying, you know, I, I want to contest this work violation. You'll say, oh, I'll take care of it. Uh, but we're talking about a, a problem involving um, anti-Semitism. Let me just segue and I'll answer the question, your question after I, after I deal with this 
section on the Obama administration's response to product labels. In late January, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency changed its policy on imports from the West Bank, imposing, in fact, a sanction on goods. So the, the, the Obama administration um, mirrored or absorbed Europe's policy. But at the time, it was interesting. When asked in November if labeling constitutes a boycott, Mark C. Toner, U.S. State Department Deputy Spokesman, said, open quote, it's, uh, it, could be, it could be perceived as a step on the way, close quote. He was stumbling a bit, but he acknowledged it could lead to a boycott. Just a month later, um, his, his boss, John Kirby, State Department spokesman, said, open quote, we do not view the labeling origin of products as being from the settlements a boycott of Israel. We also do not believe that labeling the origin of products is equivalent to a boycott, closed quote. So that's the Obama administration's position, which mirrors the European Union position right now, which is um, very interesting. So your question? And then so one more thing then. There will be an opportunity for Q&A. So please allow Mr. Weintraub to finish the presentation. So okay. we'll have a 30, 45 minutes. He's right. I violated the rule. I so plead guilty. It's, it's fine. Um, I, uh, um, so the, but there have been some, um, some lawmakers in the U.S. have tried to breathe life and fire into stopping uh, the European labeling system. Um, here's some examples. Um, Prior to the EU imposing a label on Israeli products in November, Senator from the great state of New York, Kirsten Gillibrand, am I pronouncing that right? Yes. And uh, presidential candidate from the Republican Party, Ted Cruz, took the lead in sending out a letter to the EU um, in November. They wrote, it was a bipartisan letter, I think 36 senators, um, I have to check the exact number, but it was, it was a high number of senators. Open quote, as allies, elected representatives of the American people and strong supporters of Israel, we urge you not to implement this labeling policy, which appears intended to discourage Europeans from purchasing these products and promote a de facto boycott of Israel, close quote. So they got it, in my view, the senators who wrote that letter. In terms of the presidential candidates, well, he's now defunct, but Mark Rubio, defunct as a presidential candidate, condemned the guidelines as anti-Semitic. He, he used the A word. Um, Hillary Clinton um, has condemned the BDS movement, but to my knowledge has not addressed the labeling guidelines. Um, I, don't, I don't recall her saying anything at her speech at APEC, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Donald Trump has remained silent on the BDS, um, on BDS and, and, and labeling. Um, as folks know, his sort of now famous quote is, open quote, let me be sort of a neutral guy, close quote in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. And what, what I thought was interesting, in Germany, he had a spokeswoman show up on a very popular television show. The, they have talk shows, which are um, sort of newsy and um, a bit different than the U.S., more, bit, sort of a mixture of news and entertainment. And she went to great lengths to say that Trump would be neutral in the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. So she was speaking to an audience that wanted to hear that and sending them sort of dog whistles that, um, from her point of view, Trump will sort of continue um, Obama's policies or in that direction. That's, that's how I interpreted it. Now, what's interesting in terms of the, in terms of the responses from the Americans um, is there has also been um, a breath of fresh air in, in Europe. There are two countries that actually opposed implementing labels. Many of you may have, may have read this in the Jerusalem Post and other Israeli papers. Hungary, with a, with a very right wing 
government. Um, authoritarian, I would say, with a small A, or maybe with a large A right now, it's hard to say, and the most left-wing government in the history of Europe since 1945 in Greece. Both of those countries are vehemently opposed to labeling and are not going to label Israeli products. So it's a topsy, it's a tips, you know, it's a topsy-turvy world right now in Europe. Um, I'm trying to make sense of it, and a lot of other people are too, in terms of how this labeling is playing out. Now, I'll, I'm on point four. Let me see how much time we have here. I want to make sure we have enough for the uh, questions answered. About ten more minutes. Yeah. Okay. The damage to Israel's economy, and I'll just quickly go through this. Uh, there's been mixed views on the damage to Israel's economy based on what I've read. Um, some of the high-profile companies, many of you have read, um, pulled out of the disputed territories. For example, SodaStream. That's probably the most um, most um, important, I guess, example of where BDS imposed pressure. Um, I thought it was remarkable when I was abroad that Scarlett Johansson, is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah, um, as many of you know, um, came out against um, um, BDS and, and used the A word too. She talked about anti there's a lot of anti-Semitism out there is what she said, um, which is very interesting because she has a, um, understands contemporary anti-Semitism without getting into all the, you know, the academic theory um, about it. Um, she instinctively understood it, and so did Woody Allen, by the way, when he was in Israel. That's amazing. Right. There was an interview with him when he was doing his new film, and he talked about, during this interview with one of the Israeli television stations, that um, there's a lot of anti-Semitism behind this um, sort of ad nauseum criticism of Israel that we experience. Um, I have to think it was last year, two years ago. If you, if you send me an email afterwards, I'll, I'll send you the link. Um, so. The, the damage to Israel's economy, as I've mentioned, there is soda stream, there is the case of the, the orange um, telecommunications giant um, that claims it wasn't a BDS measure and the, chief, the CEO showed up to, to Israel to um, try to apologize. Um, but on the other hand, when you look at Israel's economy, um, Israel's exports to Europe have increased since 2005. They're still fairly strong. Um, even in, in, in South Africa, as one of my editors at the Jerusalem Post recently wrote, um, trade has um, increased, even though there's a, an incredibly hostile environment toward Israel there. And trade is now increasing with China, India, Southeast Asia, Vietnam. Um, so it, it's, there, there is this, um, again, what I would say a mixed bag is it is BDS um, really hurting Israel's economy, it's, it's I mean, they're, they're competing views. I should say, when I, when I did interview Uzi Dayan when I was in Israel in February, the um, former um, uh, major general in the Israeli army, the son of, or nephew of Moshe Dayan, I asked him about BDS, and he said to me that the main problem with this BDS movement is um, delegitimization, that these folks who are the BDS activists are, are trying to strip Israel of its identity, trying to strip Israel, of course, of its existence, and trying to just issue body blows to Israel so that it, it loses its sense of legitimacy. In short, to turn Israel into um, a highly abnormal country. Um, so I, I think his pr perspective is interesting because that's where a lot of the BDS is taking place, right, especially in Europe. Um, 
I mean, I, I, can't, I tweet every weekend, or try to tweet every weekend. Another weekend passes in Europe where um, there hasn't been one mass demonstration against Assad, Islamic State, Hezbollah, and Iran. Um, and I said, you know, I, I'll ask on my Twitter feed, where are those 10, 000, tens of thousands of Gaza supporters when you need them? You know, and this has been going on now for um, five years now, right? We just went past the five-year point for the Syrian civil war. Um, but what, what immediately triggers mass demonstrations across European cities, Berlin, Paris, London, is um, a conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. There is one thinker who just wrote, one writer um, in Ynet just a few days ago, um, Tal Kainan, the CEO of Clarity Capital, a New York and Tel Aviv-based investment firm. He wrote a piece, BDS is an existential threat. And he delved into it, and you can read the article on Ynet, um, from the economic point of view and um, listed some very compelling figures as to why um, BDS could, um, has the potential to severely damage um, Israel's economy. Now, I'll move on to the countervailing forces. I should just add, in terms of BDS and Israel's economy, I think the jury's still out. That's sort of my, my view at this point. I'm somewhat, I, I think I'm agnostic, but at times I tend to think that it could, um, it's doing some damage. But um, in, the, in the final analysis, I think the jury's still out in terms of the economy. I think Uzi Dayan, my personal view, was right that this, these types of movements, unless there's um, resistance, will continue to um, create um, a delegitimization of Israel's existence. This leads me to the countervailing forces in the U.S. versus um, the European Union. Um, as I mentioned at the outset of this talk, the main difference as I see it is you have um, many movements across Europe, civil society organizations, NGOs, and of course um, political leaders and state organizations, state entities that support BDS. Um, Nearly 50 states in the United States have now passed some form of um, anti-BDS legislation, whether it's um, real legislation with teeth, which we have in the state of Illinois, which last week listed, named and shamed companies. Um, I have to check the list of some of those countries that are European that are involved in BDS activity. Um, that's highly remarkable um, that a state would do that at this point and seeks, and the state of Illinois seeks to penalize companies that engage in BDS activity. New York State, it's still, the legislation is still meandering its way through the process. I spoke to a, someone from the um, State Senate, the spokesperson, and um, he explained to me that, as I understand it, they're trying to, Senate is trying to merge a bill with the Assembly to um, have a very, very robust anti-BDS law in New York State. But we've seen other states, South Carolina, et cetera, Georgia the other day also passed anti-BDS legislation. This is unprecedented. In Europe, there is one example. It wasn't initially designed for a BDS, but France has an anti, which has been interpreted now as an anti-BDS law that came about in 2003, 2004, 2003, excuse me. It's called the Lelouch Law, and it has stiff penalties for BDS. So to France's credit, they have BDS law on the books, but at the same time, the French were the ones who were aggressively pushing product labelings. So we have that um, sort of cognitive dissonance in the French psyche playing out. Um, and of course, the French want to implement or moving in the direction of some type of unilateral plan to um, impose a settlement on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which again could be viewed as a form of BDS in terms of a larger definition. So 
France is, is the one example that mirrors the U.S., um, but it doesn't oppose product labeling, um, which many of the U.S. many of the U.S. measures do. And um, Britain, many of you may have read that the Tory government, David Cameron's government, issued passed legislation to punish city councils that want to boycott Israel, um, which is also quite remarkable, given that many of these city councils are controlled by Jeremy Corbyn's um, Labour Party, and they've been incredibly um, energetic in boycotting Israel and passing resolutions. And the Tory government's legislation has teeth to it. So it, it, it's something that could be a model for the continent um, if you know other countries like Germany and Switzerland, um, Norway would be willing to, to move in that direction. Um, Spain, um, there's a pro-Israel group there that's, in, that's um, used the anti-discrimination law in, in Spain to force a city council to um, withdraw its boycott resolution. And they forced um, Ariel University, excuse me, they forced a Spanish university to pay compensation, or it might have been the Spanish government, to pay Ariel University in the disputed territory um, compensation for excluding the university from uh, academic competition. Um, the settlement came out last year, I believe. Um, so that's a clever tactic in terms of using um, anti-discrimination law. But I should say, and I, and I don't mean to, you know, be imposed sort of a form of clinical depression on all of you tonight, but I, I think where this is, where most of these groups are just scratching the surface in terms of BDS in Europe. These are very important victories, but um, it, BDS, again, I'm using a broad definition, is so ubiquitous in Europe that you need, um, in my view, to, to incorporate a strategy where you begin to mobilize um, groups on the ground, because there is a lot of pro-Israel potential in Europe, Christian Zionists, um, other groups that are just unorganized and non-mobilized. Um, that's a long-term project, but it can be done. So I do see segments of the European um, community as being a bundle of potential. So um, while everyone's beating up Europe, and I'm one to beat up Europe too because of their horrible anti-terrorism policies, uh, the Europeans could regenerate themselves very quickly, not only in terms of counterterrorism, uh, in terms of what we saw in Belgium, what we've seen in France and Denmark. Um, they, many Europeans could regenerate themselves in terms of um, support for Israel once they um, have a deeper understanding of what, what this, for lack of a better word, what this war is about right now. Um, so a couple of other examples in, in Europe where um, there have been some successes um, the the banking system in Europe, I just um, um, broke a story for the Jerusalem Post in February. The DAB bank, a bank in Munich holds a BDS account for the main BDS group in Germany called BDS Campaign. So I was meandering my way through their website. I noticed that they have a, they list, the BDS group lists the bank account and you can electronically transfer funds to this group. So I, call, I found out that the bank was owned by uh, Parablus in France, which was just fined uh, nearly $9 billion by the U.S. government for Iran, Cuba, and Sudan sanctions, I think, a, a year ago. It's the largest fine in, for a financial institution um, in the history of, of, of banking. Um, and this bank in France owns the German bank, and I contacted the spokesperson, and I said, you know, ask them questions, this is a violation of French law, there's an anti-BDS law, how does this mesh with um, your counter your anti-terrorism policies in light of um, 
the fine, because a lot of these BDS groups, if you closely monitor them, like what we did with Code Pink, they're, they're, in, they're working with jihadists, they're working with Hamas, they're working with Hezbollah, so it's much more um, interconnected in Europe. It's, it's worth recalling that Hezbollah, the Lebanese terrorist organization, is legal in Europe. They outlawed the military wing, which is a, a, a distinction without a difference, but the organization, the political wing, is still operating. So this organization, and they, of course, Hezbollah and the Hamas members, which is also illegal, but there are 300 members in Germany, um, participate in this BDS activity. So to cut to the chase, the French bank, Paribas, pool, within a week closed the account of the, uh, the BDS group. So you can, there, it's interesting that um, there is some sensitivity. Um, I was, to my astonishment, you know, this took place within a week when I got, when I spoke to a second source to confirm it, and BDS, um, the BDS campaign group in um, Germany went ballistic and they were issuing all sorts of, you know, anti-Semitic cartoons about the closure, um, you know, attacking me in terms of with, the, with these cartoons and articles. But a large financial institution in Germany and France recognized that um, there's something very unsavory about BDS and closed the account. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes in terms of the countervailing forces in Europe. There are other organizations that are doing terrific work in uncovering BDS activity, exposing the um, inherently anti-Semitic nature of these organizations. NGO Monitor, many of you probably know, uh, Gerald, Professor uh, Gerald Steinberg, um, they've delved into this whole layer of NGOs, and I see it as a sort of a, a troika system. You have the, um, the state-sponsored BDS apparatus, that's the government. You have NGOs, um, which are scattered all around, which receive government funding that promote BDS in Israel and, of course, in, in Europe. And then the third layer is the civil society or private organizations um, that are actively involved in, in BDS. Also in Austria, um, there has been to, again, to my astonishment, the Austrians are actually far ahead of the Germans in countering BDS. In my wildest dreams, I never thought this would have happened, but um, this past um, March, um, for those who follow BDS on campuses in Europe, a student group in, at, the, at the University of Vienna, um, three groups that formed the governing coalition in the student parliament, the Social Democrats, because student groups is, is are, they're very aligned with political parties. You know, it's, it's much different than the U.S. The Social Democrats, which the Chancellor of Austria is a Social Democrat. The Greens, another very powerful party in Austria, and the Communists. Yes, there are some Communists left. Left, but this is probably the only pro-Israel Communist group I've met. Um, and these three student groups that control the student parliament issued a resolution defining BDS as anti-Semitic and. Um, opposing it, of course, and criticizing their U.S. counterparts on colleges for supporting BDS. I wrote the, I wrote the dispatch for the Jerusalem Post, did very well. I, I, I strongly suspect it was a bit over 100,000 page views, but it didn't get as much traction in the U.S. as I anticipated, um, probably because it's an election cycle and everyone sort of turned inward and focused more on what's happened in the U.S. But I, I, it's just inexplicable that one student from the University of Maryland, um, Nat, helped... Uh, Nat knows her, um, mentioned to me that she had read the article and uh, she's doing um, work in this area and uh, didn't know it was my byline, but she was very happy to see it. It sort of was um, the type of um, 
news that, that can breed inspiration for folks who are, do, who are doing work in this area, because it can be very lonely, especially on college campuses right now, I would imagine, for uh, minority groups that are working to oppose BDS. Mm. So in Austria, that took place, and the mayor of Austria told me also in February, his spokesman called me, and I was inquiring about BDS events in a city subsidized building. Um, he told me he opposes um, BDS. The mayor of Vienna is a social democrat. And following the expose in the Jerusalem Post, the city of Vienna pulled the plug on the two BDS events, three BDS events in a city subsidized cultural center. Um, there was also additional pressure in the city of Vienna, but um, it's very interesting that. Um, there is, there is a strong anti-BDS current in Vienna. And lastly, many of you might know this woman, Hedy Epstein, um, who's a, um, a, a, um, a anti-Zionist Jew um, who's, and has very um, favorable views of Hamas. She's 91 and she travels around the world, mainly Europe, um, bashing Israel and calling for the dissolution of Israel. She was scheduled to speak in the Austrian parliament. Um, she's based in St. Louis. Um, as you can imagine, she's a, um, an enormously popular speaker in Europe. There's an incredible demand for someone because she survived the Holocaust. She fled um, um, Nazi Germany in 1938. Wait, when was the kinder transport? 38, 39? 39. 39, thank you. Um, to Great Britain. Uh, you can, one could argue about what you know, what's the definition of a Holocaust survivor. That's a whole other discussion. But she, you know, her website and her her, her spiel is Holocaust survivor Hetty Epstein will deliver a talk against Israel. Um, so, but what, what, I think, what I think is remarkable is that the, the Austrian parliament was slated to hold a talk with her and it was during International Women's Day during, during that week where events were being held to honor women and they invited women from around the world to talk about genocidal events. So Japanese women who survived or witnessed um, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, etc. And um, Hetty was, was scheduled to speak, but you know she typically talks about Israel in her talks. And um, the woman who, who organized the event is a 9-11 truther from the United States who believes in her articles, that, that in one article she wrote, that Israel was behind 9-11. Um, so I, I presented this information to the spokeswoman for the Austrian parliament, and the Austrian president, the Austrian parliament, parliamentary president, canceled the event. Um, so there is something at work in Austria. I don't know if it's going to spill over into other countries, um, where there's a, where there is some level. Of it's not perfect, um, but there seems to be a level of sensitivity about this issue that I don't see uh, right now in Germany or Switzerland. Um, now I will get to the last point here. Let me just see what we're doing. Yes, questions. Point number six: Where's BDS in Europe tending? I'll just give a running shopping list of where I see where I see BDS tending, the dangers ahead. These are the areas that I would imagine you know Israeli officials and these you know the NGOs are involved in fighting BDS and European politicians who are sympathetic to Israel. Um, would, would have to devote serious thought to, in my view. Um, settlers or Israelis who live in the settlements being banned from entering the EU, that's a potential danger. That could be the next step in terms of where BDS is tending in Europe. What we saw the, last week at the United Nations um, Human Rights Council in Geneva where there was a blacklist of Israeli, the, the, the council introduced a blacklist of, of firms operating in the disputed territories to cause damage. <coughs> Um, that could be absorbed or taken on by the EU because the EU countries 
I think most of them abstained from the vote. So um, typical <coughs> European Union where they're, you know, their spines quickly turn to jelly when they have to make an important decision. Um, three, the incremental labeling of more products from the disputed territories, stronger labeling, um, intensified um, activity in this area, um, increased BDS activity from, as I mentioned, um, new migrants to Europe. Um, that, that will give a shot in the arm to um, the BDS activists, you know, again, the next generation or the current generation, depends how fast um, folks get integrated. I'm joking here, but, you know, a perfect integration would mean in Europe that they support BDS. Um, if you're well integrated and well assimilated, that would correspond to supporting BDS. Um, the possible um, interference with, with um, more human rights groups, for example, Human Rights Watch has called for a boycott of Israeli goods in the disputed territories, so more activity in that, in that area. I also see um, more attempts, for example, in Bremen and Bonn after the labeling took place, which I mentioned gave a real shot in the arm to BDS activists, a group of Ger groups of Germans marched into department stores and um, supermarkets wearing white coats, and on the white coats there was the word inspector, and they went around seizing Israeli goods to inspect them if they were from the disputed territories. The white coats, of course, suggest that Israeli products are contaminated. So it's, it's, it, it's a you know, the continuity between the 12 years of fascism between 1933 and 1945 and the <coughs> present was um, on display with these German groups, these anti-Israeli activists, and these were Germans. Um, I've, I've watched the videos and I've read the articles who marched into these department stores. Um, and as many of you know, and I'll end on this point, um, there, there was an, uh, a high-end department store that pulled Israeli wines from um, their, shel it's their shelves, Kadeve in Berlin, um, earlier this year, it was a big story because the Spiegel reporter, wh whom I know, um, called up the department store and sent them emails, excuse me, sent emails. I, I got copies of his email queries from, um, from different sources. And he said, what, what, you know, Israeli products are on your shelves. They ju the EU just passed a law determining them to be illegal. And of course, Kadeve, there was a Pavlovian reaction, and they removed eight brands of wines from the store in January. So I spoke to the spokesman, and he, and when I was in Israel, and he was trying to defend it, saying, "Well, we want to make sure it's properly labeled, etc." And then I researched the department store a bit more, and the department store was Aryanized in the 1930s. And I published that, and then, then the Israeli government, I noticed the next day, picked up on that because they quoted it in, the, in their statements that the store was Aryanized and the store quickly put back the products. When I spoke to the Spiegel reporter, um, and I asked him, well, you know, you sent this email saying that the products are, are illegal, and he was tweeting about it, you know, that this is illegal. And in Europe, it's opinion journalism and, edit and um, news gathering is mixed. It's much different than the United States and England, where there's a Berlin Wall between editorializing and straight news reporting or news gathering. And I asked him, well, you know, what, you know, what was your motivation for this, and did you consult with your editors? And he said yes, and then he told me that all the editors at Der Spiegel support labeling. I said, there must be one dissenting voice there. And he, he, didn't, he declined to answer my last question. I'll end on that note. Thanks for your time.
so Jonathan, you... So following up about the Obama administration role, can you clarify, can you go expand what, if, if there is an Obama administration or Kerry do you think Congress could counter that, um, uh, labeling as well as NGO funding in Europe through trade legislation or somehow? Uh, and uh, is, could it be that there's no such thing as bad news and that despite the stigmatization of illegitimacy, like getting into the press ends up helping these Israelis uh, exporters? I mean, I come from a kibbutz where they believe that uh, getting from number 10 to number 8 in popularity of orange juice brands in Germany is more important than anything they could put on an Israeli grocery store shelf. And so if they can get a, a pro-Israel niche, they would be, or, or just a, a niche in any case in Germany, they're much more concerned about that than the entire domestic Israeli market. Um, and also, do you think there's like a left-wing fatigue from BDS, because there's sort of these these intense Palestinian activists jump into all kinds of causes. They want to siphon off attention. This intersectionality thing is mostly them exploiting the energy of any other leftist group and uh, and uh, and hogging the narrative. Do you think that uh, there's going to be like a, uh, there's going to be perhaps uh, a, uh, a fatigue on the left from de dealing with this issue, and maybe it'll just burn itself out. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have to repeat all those questions, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, um, let me let me start with the first. He, um, the gentleman asked about the Obama administration's view toward labeling. What is there? Um, what is exactly is the policy? As I understand it, to um, are there any uh, federal trade agreements like the TTIP that would um, um, blunt uh, the BDS activity? Three um, correct. Israel is Israel seeking a, a market niche in Europe for its products that would help with with trade? Is that your question? Well, it, it seems to be counterproductive. All this BDS noise does does the controversy around Israel's territory end up helping exports? Ironically. Oh, I see. Like, are we are we being uh, escape or are we being stigmatized as the smart, useful Jews? And is that actually good for our short-term economic interests? Okay, so he's asking if the controversy about BDS and labeling is actually helping um, Israel's economy. And the last question is, is there a left-wing fatigue among the BDS activists? Um, well, let me start with the Obama-Kerry question. I think um, what I read is the policy. Um, the Obama administration does not support um, full-blown boycott of, of Israel, of course, but the Obama administration embraced the European view and supports this what what many refer to as um, in the field as a soft BDS measure labeling. Um, the difference between the Obama administration and the Europeans right now on this issue is the State Department, as many of you know, has um, an anti-Semitism definition. The Europeans dropped or refused to even acknowledge that they had a working definition of modern anti-Semitism. So if you go on the State Department website, you'll see a, a definition that's very good. It lacks one component that I would like to see that charges Jews with, um, accuses Jews of jingoism, but on the whole, it's a good definition. Um, that definition, of course, if it existed in Europe, could be used in terms of the, uh, the anti-BDS campaign. Um, the federal legislation or, or trade deals that could help um, blunt BDS is the TTIP agreement, the European 
a U.S. free trade agreement. There is there is language in there in the agreement that discourages boycotts, but it 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 doesn't have real teeth from my perspective. It doesn't have hard hitting penalties. It's um, it's language that's very useful um, and it's very sophisticated, but um, it, it doesn't. Um, clamp down and cause enormous economic pain to companies that are boycotting Israel or aiding these groups. Um, the left-wing fatigue, um, I don't see that happening. And uh, the, uh, the example I have is Bayreuth, the, where, the, where I showed the video, or where the Code Pink just, where Code Pink got a uh, human prize award. When this dispute was unfolding in Bayreuth, and again, it was a two to three week national scandal in Germany. It's hard to believe, but it turned into a scandal where the wire services were picking up and, and it blanketed the anti-Semitism role, blanketed the press. Code Pink has a, a representative in Berlin. Um, I believe she's, a, um, she's an American Jew. I believe her parents fled the Holocaust. Again, it's a bit sketchy, but she's fluent in German. And she immediately went to Bayreuth and lobbied all the city council representatives. Um, to my knowledge, I didn't see any um, anti-BDS folks uh, lobbying those city council representatives. I suspect in the end that's why they won, because of her intense lobbying and presenting herself as you know, a peace organization and trying to downplay their Code Pink's um, um, support of Hol Iranian Holocaust deniers and also their um, their um, infatuation with the North Korean regime. For whatever reason, they seem to be very supportive of, of the hermit kingdom um, lately. So I don't see a left-wing fatigue. Um, I see a left-wing fatigue kicking in when, um, when um, the opponents um, go on the, the offensive and decide to um, um, work around the clock like they do and um, are willing to sort of sweat from every porous and and you know, to put it in sort of harsh terms, spit up some blood to, to beat the uh, BDS movement. Um, that's what's going to take. Your last question about, uh, your third question actually, which I'm answering now about um, Israel, um, whether the controversy is helping Israel. I don't see that. That's the view actually of the peace movement in Israel. Um, the left, the extreme left, I would probably say merits, um, take the view, well, this is a good measure labeling because it'll tell Europeans and other consumers that they should support Israeli products that are made um, within the borders of 67, that they'll know to buy these products and it'll, it'll help advance the peace process. So I, I, I'm very skeptical of that view. Yes, Ms. Listen. Um, several things. Uh, the delegitimization of Israel is just another um, example of the delegitimization of Jews all during the third Reich and before the third Reich, and still the Jews outright, they can be legitimized by piece by piece. Um, secondarily, Norway, for instance, is doing one step better or worse in that when you want to have kosher shafted meat or you want to have um, uh, brisk milah, they won't let that happen. They have passed laws to say, no, the meat doesn't have to be kosher shafted and, and makes it very difficult for Jews to get kosher meat if they're kosher. Also, people who want brisk milah can't get it. And um, also, it's uh, just did a piece on GMO, uh, genetically modified foods, and that arouses great panic and great passion. And I think there's a connection there between the negativity to genetically modified foods, which people are hysterical about without foundation, and these things that are to such an extent that recently uh, BDS uh, was so intent on uh, delegitimizing soda stream that they said, we don't care if thousands of Palestinian Arabs 
were thrown out of work that was good paying and, and well compensated in medical benefits and so forth, and they didn't care. As long as Israel was screwed, as long as um, products that were done uh, behind the green line were screwed. And there were so many parallels. There's an irony also in that um, Angela Merkel, when asked what her reason is for bringing in millions of so-called refugees from these areas that are under uh, problematic uh, uh, war, bellicosity, she says, well, you know, we want to make up for the things that we did to the Jews. But the irony is, the more of these refugees that come in, the less likely it is that, that BZS will be um, uh, protested. The more refugees and more Muslim people coming in to Germany, to Austria, to all the countries of Europe, the less likely it is that Jews will have a voice or that the protest people will have a voice because they're being overwhelmed by children and they're being overwhelmed by very activist men between 15 and 40. Yeah, I mean, I've never heard Merkel directly or explicitly say that she's admitting refugees because of the Holocaust or Jews. It was a dot, dot, dot. Yeah. It was a dot, dot, dot. And oh, congratulations, by the way, on this terrific amount of research you did. I, I paid her to say that right <laughs> two hours ago, actually, before my talk. Um, just, just in quickly to respond, um, I, again, I, I'm not, I've reported on uh, Syrian refugees on the Syrian-Turkey border, and I crossed into Syria in 2013. Um, I'm not someone who's opposed to um, um, resettling refugees. I guess the question is, um, the how Europe's handling the, the Syrian war and why um, Europe's not bringing the war to Assad. I'm, I'm someone who, who supports intervention um, and thinks that the Assad regime should be dissolved and Iran should be curbed. Um, so it's it's a tricky thing, but it's, it's I don't want to veer too too much off on that topic. We can talk afterwards because it's it's not you know it's a secondary issue to the talk. But thank you. Yes, miss. yes, thank you. Yes, we've been waiting. I think I have two questions who are that are then, brief. <laughs> uh, you mentioned all the the candidates of PDS. You did not mention Bernie Sanders. Has he addressed that at all? That's the first question. Quick uh, and really quickly. The second question is this: um, the American courts. Do you think that they are going down a slippery slope in connection with BDS? I think there's a connection here. When they um, disallowed an American citizen born in Jerusalem to have Israel noted on his passport. It had to say Jerusalem. That not that BDS in other clothes? Yep. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, um, the two questions are, um, what's Bernie Sand? Did Bernie Sanders address BDS? Um, and is is the uh, Ameri the uh, Supreme Court decision to um, not allow um, um, Americans born in Israel to put Jerusalem on their passport? No, if, if uh, an American born in Jerusalem cannot have Israel on his passport. Israel, excuse me. Yeah. Um, let me try to. I'll address the first question. The second question is trickier because I'm not a lawyer and I can just sort of you know wildly speculate what that's about, but um, Bernie Sanders hasn't addressed it, to my knowledge, uh, BDS. Uh, wait, I, I stand corrected. There was a JT article. Um, good question. I just read this because there, the problem with BDS is the, the, it's, there's the news that comes out at a rapid-fire pace right now because it's so prevalent in the media as opposed to a year ago. Um, there was a JTA article that, where he did say BDS has elements or is anti-Semitic. So he actually did come out with a very good statement. Um, that you would think the Europeans, because he's a democratic socialist, would publicize everywhere, but it, it, it didn't get picked up, to my knowledge, in, in Europe. So to his credit, 
um, he, he understands that uh, BDS is anti-Semitic. But his, his policies on, you know, his, whether on the labeling, um, I can't imagine him deviating from the European Union and the Obama administration view. I might be wrong because, you know, he does support, he's a firm supporter of the Second Amendment, right? As I understand, he supports gun control, which, which contradicts the Obama administration's view. So he's a difficult cat to pin down at times. In my view, the 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 court decision, I, I, I sort of venturing in, in shark infested waters here. I just don't know enough about about that to. Um, I, I mean, I read the articles at the time. And I met with the lawyer Nat um, Lewin. Thank you, in his office in Jerusalem, where they explained the case to me. I wasn't reporting on it because I don't cover the United States. I cover Europe. Um, I don't. My my initial reaction is I don't see that as BDS. Um, I just I think that's a sort of a narrow legal question. Um, so, yes, sir. Been Do you think that the, um, the current terrorism and the other problems with the uh, refugees, the sexual harassment in Germany, and all the other myriad problems that have been happening to the to the refugee to, you know, uh, in the refugee community ha is going to affect people's attitudes towards Israel? Will it, maybe make people a little more aware, the violence and the other disorder, make people a little more aware of what Israel is up against? I'm asking him. These are excellent questions. Um, the, the gentleman asked is um, um, the, the, um, the terrorism attacks in Europe and the um, um, mass uh, sexual attacks on women and sexual harassment, are these problems um, going to affect uh, European views towards Israel. Um, I, 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 no, I think, I think again, there's, um, it's very hard to jump into the future on this type of question. Um, Is there any evidence now of any change? Um, I think there's been, of course, a, a, a boost in, um, for, for example, in Germany, the Alternative for Germany party, it's a, it's a right-wing populist party that's not friendly toward Israel. Um, I've seen uh, their demonstrations where uh, Germans have approached with Israeli flags who are pro-Israel and they've, uh, the, this right-wing populist party, the alternative for Germany, has told them to, to leave the demonstration. Um, so it, it's, um, I think the trends don't look good for European Jews. And my view is, and I mentioned this I believe last year at this conf at this, at ISCAP when I spoke, European Jews have three or four possibilities right now. One is they can make Aliyah, which I hope they would do um, as an Israeli citizen. Two, they can relocate to um, safe spaces, to use the, the language of college students now. Those safe spaces would be the United States and Canada, and New Zealand, uh, Australia, mainly countries Australia, in... Australia, no. No? No. Absolutely not. Okay. Well, I think the Anglo-American world is safer than, uh, than Europe. Three, they could self-arm, you know, and impose or create their own version of the Second Amendment and arm themselves and form self-defense groups. Or four, they stay in Europe and they turn inward and they're running scared and they're afraid to criticize uh, Islamic animated anti-Semitism, etc. Those are the four possibilities. Um, Daniel Pipes, who I uh, respect, um, predicted, and this may answer your question on some level, I think it resonates with me, that Europe is now tending toward two possibilities. Right-wing um, fascism, 
you know, sort of the echoes or some modernized version of what we experienced. With uh, we see this with Le Pen in France and other right-wing parties, or um, Islamic animated fascism, where there's a strong uh, or a strong presence of, of political Islam that um, you know would uh, repress Jews in many ways. Yes, sir. <coughs> I'd like to ask two questions. Question number one. First of all, thank you for your presentation. Question number one. Most of the uh, references you made were to BDS related to products. Would you care to comment about the boycott movement in academic circles in Europe and where this movement uh, is going? My second question is a bit more difficult. Um, Omar Baruti, you mentioned his name, mm -hmm. uh, is not only the founder of the BDS movement, he's an active leader of this movement and goes all over the world promoting this movement. It so happens that he has Israeli residence. It so happens he is a, a resident of Akko. It so happens that the Israeli government hasn't been able to put its acts together, even with regard to denying him residency for what he's doing all over the world to Israel. So my question is, what in, by, by what you know, what has the Israeli government done as compared with talking about? What has the Israeli government done to combat this phenomenon? Yeah. Um, those are excellent questions this evening. Um, his gentleman's, yep, I see my director here has uh, pulled out the German whip. And, uh, um, the first question is, um, he asked is, what's the status of BDS in academia in Europe? Um, the second question is, what, what, what is the Israeli government doing to combat BDS, especially in light of the fact that many of the BDS activists are from the Israeli Knesset or outside of the Knesset and travel around the world to promote BDS? First question, um, it's a great question because I, I, I should have mentioned this in my talk um, and, I, and I left it out. And that's why in the end, at the end of the day, good questions are better than good answers. The, a university this past February, I believe, Ruhr University in Bochum, it's in the Ruhrgebiet in, um, in, uh, in the German, Germany sort of industrial heartland, invited a Palestinian um, BDS activist to speak. I believe he's from one of the executive committees of the PLO, and he was invited to talk. Um, I, I got wind of it and uh, wrote an article and questioned the university. It was on the weekend, so... Um, they couldn't get back to me on Monday, and then they tweeted me on Monday and said they canceled the talk, um, So, which is interesting. Um, the other example I can think of right now is the teachers' union in Germany um, is based in Hamburg, the headquarters, I believe. It's the Gewerkschaft here, Erziehungs and Wissenschaft, GEW. Um, the same speaker who was scheduled to speak at this university in Ruhr um, was um, scheduled to speak in Hamburg for, at this teachers' union, and that talk, um, the teachers pulled the plug on it, or the union. Um, so there are these countervailing forces um, in with, but there have been also very problematic uh, cases where um, in the University of Mainz, there was a conference many years ago, 2009, 10, in Berlin involving Iran and the Middle East, and 
um, an Arabist or Islamic studies professor in Mainz, I believe, um, um, barred an Israeli professor from Ariel University, who's an Iran expert, from talking about um, medieval Iran, I believe. Brilliant guy. I, I mean, my, my, my short-term memory is fading. I wish I could remember his name. Um, I can send you the article. In any event, they, the, this, this Islamic um, studies professor who runs an institute at Mainz barred him from attending. Of course, he hasn't barred any other academic from any other Middle East country, etc., China. You know, all these professors have been allowed where occupations, putting that in scary quotes, are taking place. Um, or dis conflict disputes, occupations. You can, you know, there's a lot of terminology surrounding this area. So I wrote him, and eventually, I think the University of Mainz put pressure on him, and he in invited or re-invited the Israeli professor. But there's a lot of that stuff happening that's hard to detect, um, unless it sort of the, the Israeli professor contacted me. So in this case, it was, you know, there was someone who was willing to speak up. Um, the second question, um, what is Israel doing? Let me just get my uh, notes here because I, I wanted to mention this in terms of um, the counterbalance forces. Um, these titles are very bureaucratic. Gilad Erdan is the new strategic affairs and public diplomacy minister in charge of fighting BDS. So the Israeli government has now devoted considerable resources and funds on the governmental level to fight BDS. How they're going to do that, we're not sure. And Michael Oren, the former U.S. ambassador to, former Israeli ambassador to uh, the U.S., recently criticized Israel's counter-BDS program because um, they're only devoting $19,000, I think he used dollars, to fight BDS in Sweden. Um, so there's got to be, it, it, I, I think the, the administration of Bibi Netanyahu has internalized that this is a, this is a strategic threat. We need to do something. And I think they're, they're trying to figure it out right now. They're in the nascent phase, but they have some very smart people who are working on the BDS, the anti-BDS portfolio. I don't, we'll see where it goes. I can tell you in Israel, or in, in Germany, the, and I, this may be a part of the, uh, the anti-BDS program, after this city in Bavaria, Bayreuth, awarded the prize to Code Pink, the city council, I should say, voted 23 to 18, the ambassador, the Israeli ambassador to um, Germany, issued a statement saying, well, this just shows that Bayreuth is trafficking in Holocaust denial and basically has learned zero in terms of the lessons of the Holocaust. Um, it was a very scathing statement. It was all over the German press, but that type of statement, I believe, would not have happened several years ago. So I think we're seeing some, some very large bleeps on the anti-BDS cardiac monitor, to put it in those terms. Yes. Intelligent people among the BDS supporters. What is their rationale for supporting them? I'm she, assuming not all of them are anti-Semitic, but maybe they are. She asked, "What what's the uh, rationale for BDS supporters?" Um, because um, she asked, because many of them are are she said not anti-Semitic. Um, it's it's uh, I mean it is a bit of a hodgepodge of a movement, but its core at its core BDS is. Um, I think fundamentally anti-Semitic and, and, and uh, vehemently opposed to, to the um, mainstream peace process, two states for two peoples. Um, I, I think the best example is Norman Finkelstein, right, who in that famous video during the BDS interview rejected the BDS movement because 
um, because of their goals, which he said would would trash the very state of Israel. Um, so I, I think in, in his own way, he made a mockery of the BDS movement, even though we know he's clinically insane. Um, <laughs> but in this moment of, of just you know breathless sanity, he pointed out um, that, that BDS is counterproductive and counterpeace. I, I mean, there haven't been any studies done on, on the attitudes of BDS supporters and, you know, and, and how anti-Semitic they are. Clearly, their, their program is anti-Semitic, um, and it, it's hard to say because there's sort of a lot of fellow travelers who might not have the same sort of um, eliminatory anti-Semitic view as some of the hardcore supporters. Certainly in Europe, you're dealing with a different, um, you know, a different psyche, again, because, because of the Holocaust and because of a very European need among large swaths of the population to purge sort of the pathological guilt associated with the Holocaust, the BDS movement allows them to do what they can't do directly. So it's politically and socially incorrect in Germany and Europe to um, blast Jews as individuals. So what you do indirectly, what, because what you can't do directly, is you end up attacking Israel. And Israel, of course, has become the, um, the collective Jew among states. Um, so, but there, there are scores of examples where that show that this, this that the BDS movement is, is contaminated with anti-Semitism, contrary to the, all their statements that we oppose um, anti-Jewish attitudes and prejudices, and you know, they issue these these platitudes constantly, but they can't rope in um, all these all these activists who are um, at times extremely violent. Yes, UJA is United Jewish Appeal, is that what it is? Yeah. Oh. Okay. okay. This gentleman? You, you had a question? Yeah. Filmmaker myself based in in Sweden, and I just wanted to uh, ask you to comment uh, uh, on the how you see uh, the BDS or what would correspond to that in the cultural arena in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I can give you many examples, but I I will, I'm more interested in your uh, panoramic view of how these things play out. Let's say in uh, in what we call culture in, in literature film, theater, and so on, and in festivals connected to that. Well, these are uh, huge questions. Um, Can I add a question to this? <coughs> Go ahead. A follow-up question. What, as part of an answer to this question, what is the role of intellectuals and professors in supporting this movement? I, not the people who demonstrate on the streets, but the people who give them a kind of a backwind yeah. Okay. The two questions are: What is the um, the role of BDS in, in the cultural landscape in Europe, literature, film, um, and what is the role of intellectuals who who support and BDS and professors? Um, let me just just ask the gentleman here: What examples did, did do you know of? Just I'm curious because you're from Sweden. Yeah. Well, I could say that one one thing which is very obvious is that. Uh, if I go outside my realm of Sweden, 
for instance, uh, many many film festivals, but not only in Europe, also in Canada, have uh, decided that they would not invite to the festivals uh, films where has been Israeli funds invested in the production of the film. Uh, or, for instance, the Festi Film Festival of Edinburgh a couple of years ago, they invited, uh, 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 this was kind of a di slightly different case, but they invited a, a short Israeli film by a woman filmmaker who is, by the way, rather critical of Israel. Uh, and uh, when uh, the, the special, let's say, uh, network or, or, or of, of filmmakers, film producers, who are trying to supervise that these that many European festivals do not invite certain films or certain films by certain filmmakers. So when they heard that that the Israeli, I think it was that the Israeli embassies have to pay part of their fare of the director to travel to Edinburgh or something like that. Right. They they and, and this this uh, group of of film producers are with a very important name cinema like, uh, 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 what's his name, the, the British, Ken Loach, right. is a major name there. I mean, he, his films are always played in the Cannes Film Festivals and so on, what have you. And he is usually working together with the British writer, John Berger, who is based in France. So these two, and, and they have hundreds of people affiliated to themselves, who work very actively with each film festival taking place in Europe. To, have, to keep an eye on these things. And, and that is the other uh, aspect of this is, for instance, that, uh, that uh, I mean, I know from, my, from Sweden where I live that, that many Swedish filmmakers would not allow their films to play in Israeli film festivals, mm. uh, even though they were, were supported by public money from the Swedish Film Institute. And that's something I raised with my friends at the Swedish Film Institute, is that okay with the spirit uh, uh, of the Swedish Film Institute that they can, they can refuse to show it, for instance, in Israel. They wouldn't refuse to show it in, in many other countries. Uh, my own case, I mean, I don't want to go into my own case, but I, I, I just recently made a film on terrorism and anti-Semitism globally and funded by the Swedish Film Institute partly and Swedish television and various regional film funds. When the film was ready, even though the Swedish television co-financed it, they refused to show it. Even though it was, had its pre-premiere in the Swedish parliament and was met with very, had very good reception there among the Swedish members of parliament when we had a panel discussion connected to the subject matter of the film of terrorism and anti-Semitism, where that overlap and so on and so forth. And, and, and this is kind of, it, it's so absurd. You know, here the Swedish public television invests, uh, it's not, they are not, not the major funder of this film, but still they invest the public money in this film. And when the film is ready, they refuse to show it. And maybe they will change their mind in the future, but it all depends on the public opinion. Have you turned to the media, Expressing? Is that the major Swedish paper? Uh, I'm turning to you. Yeah. Richard, Lund <laughs> Richard Landis, a common friend in Jerusalem, ah, the okay. two men to address these issues. Okay. No, well, it, 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 it will probably be in the Swedish media, yeah. uh, but for instance, last week we had the official Swedish premiere. Uh, 
at the Swedish Film Institute and uh, well, two things. First, when it was shown in the parliament, the parliament sent eight different personal invitations to members, uh, to, uh, to the staff of the Swedish Film Institute, you know, from the yeah. director to the None of them even answered the invitation, even though it's the Swedish parliament who, who financed the Swedish Film Institute. So why don't they do that? It's not because they are necessarily anti-Semitic, all of them, or that they are necessarily anti-Israeli, all of them. Uh, it's a group pressure. It's a tremendous group pressure in these institutions in Sweden and beyond in Europe. Yeah. And very few people have the guts to stand up for what they think. Yeah. Well, there's. And, and so, so there are many aspects of this, but I think the cultural arena is very important. And uh, I mean, the, the television stations in Europe right. uh, is, 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 is a playground for this cognitive warfare. Yeah, let me try to answer that. You're, I mean, you're doing terrific work. It's very, it's very encouraging to hear that that type of um, um, documentation or documentary film was made. Um, I wouldn't have expected it, so mazel tov. Um, Great. Well, do it before uh, the end of uh, April. I'm still in New York. I'll come by and yeah, see you. Yeah, great. For journalism and contemporary yeah. history. And well, do, so why don't we just after the after the talk, let's exchange yeah. cards and um, the, on this the cultural um, question. I, <clears throat> I mean, you, you cited a lot of what's happening in Britain, certainly with um, the name escapes me. The British playwright who won a Nobel Prize, Harold Pinter. Harold Pinter. Yeah, Carol Churchill. I'm thinking of Harold Pinter, who he, um, Carol didn't win a Nobel Prize, right, in literature. It was a uh, pinter, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> pinter, of course, was 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 a big anti-Zionist in the end and of his life. I mean, it might you could attribute it maybe to the fact that he was senile. I don't know, um, but, but may, maybe maybe he, he genuinely meant it. Um, but there's a lot of, of British Jews in the cultural sphere who who and non-Jews who support this type of activity. I was just thinking of pinter because he was um, he was catapulted into literary stardom. Then there was the uh, rapper from New York City. Help me out with his name. Um, he was just in Spain. Who was this? No, the rapper. Yeah, the rapper. He's originally from Brook Brooklyn. Um, starts with an M. Thank you. Yeah. Right. So there was an example where, um, which is quite prevalent in Europe right now, where Jews. It's the best example, but the most recent example of where Europeans or mainstream European society is. Um, compelling Jews to convert from Zionism to anti-Zionism to be assimilated, right? The, the history was Jews like Heinrich Heine and others uh, were, were forced to convert from Judaism to Catholicism or, or, or become Protestant in the case of Heine, and now they're forced, there's a new form of conversion. We saw that in the case of, of, of in, this, in this cultural example. Of course, they, they, in the end, they, they, they withdrew um, that demand that he convert to anti-Zionism. Um, but you see it in, in those types of examples. Um, in Germany, I, I haven't seen that, I mean, because most of the films that actually end up in Germany are, are very critical of Israel. 
So it's sort of the opposite effect where, you know, where the only films that are being shown are, are, are films, uh, which is fine, but you would think there would be other films. For example, I, I do recall a film about autism that an Israeli filmmaker made that was at a film festival in one of the Scandinavian countries that was um, opposed, even though it was about autism. I don't remember all the details. Norway, Norway, yeah. Norway thank you. High-functioning. High-functioning is the name of the film? Yeah. Thank you. Um, so there, there's that, and then there's also the, all, the, all the stories that we don't know about. For example, your situation. I, I'm sure that there's, there's, there, it's a highly neglected area in terms of reporting, severely underreported. If you try to explain to most European journalists what's, you know, that this, this, in my view, is a huge story, what, what you're describing right now. It's a, it's, a, it's a scandal, and it should be reported. But when you approach journalists about these types of stories in, in Europe, in contrast to the U.S., where there is reporting, um, it's just not on their radar screen. Okay, so we'll take two more questions. Almost eight o'clock, Mr. Maybe these two people from um, this gentleman with the tie and her, they haven't asked questions. Yes. yes. Well, uh, on the topic, Bibi uh, Netanyahu has a brother, a medical doctor, who's a playwright, and he wrote a play, Happy, a Happy Ending. And I went to see the play up at CUNY, uh, north of uh, Columbia, last year. And there was an army of police at this off, off, off-Broadway plant. What's going on? Apparently the night before, uh, leftists or uh, anti-Semites confused this play and the, the playwright with Bibi and, and rioted there and disrupted the, the entire uh, production. Uh, it was a play about a, a pre, uh, uh, in the 30s in Germany. So I, I don't really have a, a question to that. But now I, I uh, that wasn't my question. But I, I what about a tactic? I, I'm an immigration lawyer by trade. And I was an immigration officer for many years. And, and what about a tactic, um, perhaps this man alluded to it, that the Israeli government could do more, of trying to uh, keep people out of the US if they're a member of, a, of an anti-Semitic organization. Okay, so let's take a question too, so we can sure. just put them on. We'll combine the questions. Yes, please. Uh, so uh, speaking about labeling, uh, I really resent that everyone keeps bringing up uh, that if you're left, you know, America, that you're anti-Semitic, you know, it's really so offensive. That's just number one, because it's not the truth. You know, there are some people who hijack the party, but not all of us. I like that, so I really resent that. But what I, what I wanted to say with regard to Europe, uh, local Euro Europeans um, versus local New Yorkers here, which I've been finding, because I've started my own anti Excuse me, I'm talking, please. I, I didn't hear what you said. So then ask, it's rude, you know, I'm talking. Oh, yeah, all right. Yeah. So I've started my own anti-BDS movement, my one-woman anti-BDS movement. Can you please finish? So um, I've started my own BDS, one woman movement, and what I found is people, local people here, people that do everyday, you know, blue collar workers, you know, teachers, they don't even know what the BDS movement is until I tell them what it is. And I, <laughs> and, and what I do now is I, instead of, I, I, I tip, in wine, Israeli wines. I think Israeli wines are wonderful. And I tend to give gifts that way to encourage, support, 
of buying Israeli products. I'm just wondering, are the local people, and we hear about it in, in the media, but do local people in Europe know what the BDS movement is? Okay. So the two questions are, um, what about a tactic of keeping people out of the U.S. who, who harbor these types of anti-Semitic views? Anti-Semitic views. The second question, are local people in, um, in Europe uh, aware of BDS? First question is, I, but I would imagine if, 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 they, if these um, folks um, have um, jihadi connections or terrorism connections, um, then, you know, you can be barred. But anti-Semitism is still an opinion in the U.S. and in Europe, so I can't imagine that, um, that uh, you know, immigration officials would bar someone because they hold an anti-Semitic view. Um, in, in Europe, um, where anti-Semitism in many cases is illegal, it still is an opinion um, because they haven't embraced the modern definition of anti-Semitism. The question, are there um, <clears throat> local people in Europe, are, are they aware of BDS? Um, I would say most folks are, are not aware of sort of the, 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 you know, the abbreviated version or the abbreviation, um, BDS and what that means and how that plays out, but they don't need to be aware of it because the attitudes there, when you look at polls and, and attitude surveys, are, are um, they have pejorative views of Israel. So the boycott stuff or, you know, ostracizing Israeli goods and merchandise, you can activate that view quite quickly because of um, anti-Semitism that's been inculcated um, for, for many, many decades. Um, but I would say if you talk, if you approached a cashier in, in a supermarket in Germany and said, do you know what BDS is? She or he would say no. Um, the intellectuals, of course, and I'll answer that your, your question, the intellectuals, of course, know what BDS is. And I think in many ways the, the anti-Semitic movement in Europe is um, largely on some level, at least the intellectual gangster aspects of it, are um, driven, it's driven by, uh, it's an elite project, I should say. So you have, you have many intellectual gangsters who are involved in, in BDS, um, and I think that's what leads to the question of what's the role of professors and intellectuals in supporting BDS. You've seen the reports about British academics um, uh, uh, supporting BDS in a group of Italian academics many months ago um, issued a support for BDS. In Germany and in Austria, it's still socially and politically incorrect for German and Austrian academics, in my view, to push for an academic boycott of Israel or push for these types of measures. But um, if, you, if you spend some time in, in, in the um, Islamic studies departments in some of these universities, um, the message they're sending is BDS in, in the, the lectures of professors. There's no Israeli studies departments. They're starting to try to build these uh, Israeli studies departments, but there's been some, some um, this is not on the prof professorial level, but there's been some studies of textbooks in Germany, of course, recently um, by a joint German-Israeli commission. The textbooks are, surprise, surprise, incredibly hostile toward Israel. Um, and and um, and deal with the Holocaust. The problem is, um, and I'll wrap it up here: is Germans are stuck, and many Europeans are stuck in the period between 33 and 45. They're not willing to move beyond 45 to understand these new manifestations of anti-Semitism. So with, it's great to hear what Vivaldi's doing and, and, and ISCAP in terms of in Paris and um, where in Paris is it? So, La Salbonne. So, mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I, I could listen to his accent all night long. It's just it's like music. Um, 
and uh, Oxford. I, you know, that's that's the cutting edge stuff. But it's it's you know, on these campuses. Um, you saw what happened in Oxford with the labor union student group. The la excuse me, the labor party student group. You know, one of the uh, one of the lead students um, resigned because of left wing anti semitism. King's and I, College. King's College. So yeah. So I I think. I, I, just to answer your point about about um, leftism, I think anti-Semitism contaminates all political wings. But again, what you're seeing in Europe because of its social democratic history, and I consider Angela Merkel right now a social democrat, and so do many German commentators, although she's a, a member of a conservative party or leads the Christian Democratic Union. Um, you see this left-wing anti-Semitism uh, mushroom because left-wing activists and left-wing intellectuals say, well, left, left, the left-wing philosophy or socialism by its very definition or communism by its very definition is inherently anti-anti-anti-Semitic. They, they can't fathom that there could be something that anti-Semitism could infect the left because its very definition is opposed to anti-Semitism. And that's the problem that um, with anti-Semitism. It quickly contaminates even areas where you would expect progressives and left-wing people to be anti-anti-Semitic. That's why Bernie Sanders, I found this um, this statement incredibly uh, interesting. I'm surprised it just didn't you know, get reported on a bit more about his opposition to BDS and using the A-word. So I'll end there. I'm, I'm available after this talk to exchange notes, and uh, thanks for spending so much time here. I, we can spend another few hours. Until